those of you new here, my name's Matthew. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, if you are new, you might not realize that we meet in two locations on a Sunday morning. So we meet here and then we have another meeting which happens a mile or two down the road on the Ashley Road. So when I finish speaking, I, I leave and go into speaking at that one this morning. So it's not that I'm just fleeing in despair at what I've brought. Well, it might be. It's because I have to go to another meeting. So it means I won't be able to hang around to say hi to you at the end. So I'm sorry about that. We are, uh, over a few weeks, um, we're doing a, a short series called Good Living. We're looking at how to live well, and we're doing that based on the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs is a very practical book about how to do life. And actually, we're just taking one chapter, chapter 18 of Proverbs, and, and taking uh, verses from that chapter, and then uh, using that as a launch pad to explore different areas of how to do life well. And this morning's theme is doing good, and our verse is... Proverbs 18, verse 5, which says, It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. It's not good to do things which aren't just. You might think, well, duh, that's pretty obvious. We all know that. It's not good to uh, be favorite the, the wicked and not to... Uh, to do the right thing for those who are suffering. But sometimes the obvious things need to be stated. Sometimes, because often the way the system seems to work is that the bias actually is towards the wicked rather than towards the righteous. Of course, one thing which has been in the news quite a bit the last few weeks is, is the Hillsborough Inquiry, where after uh, many, many years, finally a sense of justice for uh, people who died in that terrible accident after all kinds of covers up and lies and distortions, uh, and that long fight for justice for the uh, 96 people who died on the 15th of April, 1989. Um, think about other things where there's been gross injustice on the face of the earth. Perhaps the, uh, perhaps, I mean, how do you rank injustices? But perhaps the most egregious example of mass injustice is, is uh, the great leap forward in China when under Chairman Mao, according to Hong Kong-based historian Frank Dickerter, at least 45 million people worked or starved or beaten to death in a four-year period. 45 million people died as a direct action of Mao's policies in the Great Leap Forward. There's 54 million people in England. So if you imagine, 50, you know, 45 million, they reckon, died in those four years. Imagine it in the context of our roads, our streets. I come from a family, there's six of us in my house. It would be like five of my family dying, only one of us left. That kind of impact and uh, that kind of injustice because of the, uh, the policies of, of, of one man. And the consistent emphasis in the Bible is upon justice. And I want to do a, a kind of a Bible study this morning, thinking about how the Bible speaks to us about justice and what God thinks about justice and, and something then of how we can apply that and, and live that in our lives. So the first thing to think about is justice and the character of God. Justice and the character of God. Justice is central to who God is. It's part of his character. And you really can't understand who God is unless you understand him as the one who is just. And I'd also suggest that you can't really understand justice without really knowing something of who God is. And uh, you can see that partly reflected in the fact that all of us have an inner sense of justice. There's something in each one of us that wants things to be right. Uh, and I think if nothing else, that, that in itself is one of the strong evidences for the reality of the existence of God and men and women being made to reflect God. If you're not a, not a, a believer in God this morning, 
I'd suggest this as one of the reasons why you should think about it, because why is it that all of us as human beings have this sense of justice, of fairness, of right and wrong? Where does that come from? Is it, is it just some kind of ha- an evolutionary byproduct? I think a much better explanation is God is just, and he's made us in his image, and so there's in us as human beings a desire for what is right, a longing for truth, a longing for purity, a longing for justice, a, in a more biblical kind of word, a longing for righteousness. Now, often that sense is, is warped. It becomes about um, uh, self-regard or that's not fair in terms of how it applies to me or how dare they say that to me. And our sense of justice, our sense of righteousness easily gets warped and corrupted or we pursue things which are supposedly a pursuit of justice which, but which actually are distorted in some way. And I'm sure if you'd sat down with Chairman Mao uh, during the Great Leap Forward and said, what are you doing? He would have said, well, it's about justice and would have considered anybody who got in his way to be thwarting what was just. And that's because the human heart is corrupt above all things and our sense of justice often gets warped and distorted, sometimes in the small things where I say, that's not fair, when actually it's perfectly fair, it's just I don't like it, right through to something as unimaginably horrific as 45 million people dying in a four-year period in one nation of the world. In God's character, though, there is no corruption. There's no distortion of justice in God. His justice is perfect. And this is one of the things we need to remember as we read the Bible. If you read through your Bible, as I hope that you do, pick the Bible up and read it, there are things at times which we find difficult, which can be confusing. And one of the things which can help us is to remember that everything God does is just. Everything that God does is right. Even the confusing things. Even the things we don't understand. Even the things we might read in our Bibles and say, whoa, what is that about? God is just. God does what is right. And Scripture is very cut and dried about this. The psalmist says, he loves righteousness and justice. God loves righteousness and justice. And that means there is a kind of a bias in God, in his heart, towards those who are most likely to suffer injustice. It says in Deuteronomy, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, the alien, the immigrant, the refugee, giving him food and clothing. And that's the typical kind of biblical grid. You read the Old Testament, and again and again that comes through, God's heart, for the, this category of people. For whom? For the orphan, for the widow, and for the alien. That's the kind of grid of uh, social justice in which the Old Testament usually works. And these, these are the people who are poor in, the, in, the, in a biblical culture in, in, the, in the time, uh, 3,000 years ago. The people who often were vulnerable who found it difficult to provide for themselves, who are most likely to be taken advantage of by others, are the orphans, are the widows, and the alien. Those are the poor, and those are the people who God has a bias towards. And what we see as we see God's heart, as we see God's character, as we see his bias towards the poor, is that um, we can't really reflect the character of God ourselves if we don't take the plight of the poor seriously ourselves. God's heart is oriented towards the widow, the orphan, the alien. If our hearts are not oriented towards those who are poor, then we're not reflecting the character, the heart of God. And so we need to think about what it means. What does it mean in our context? What 
does the alien and the widow and the orphan look like in our situation? Who should we be seeking to side with? Who should we be looking to help? Because God's heart is towards the poor, and so should ours be. It's his character. We then see that this kind of sense of justice just it shines through in the Scripture. Uh, you read through the, the law which God gave to the people of Israel, and you read through the prophets where he spoke through particular individuals, and again and again this theme of doing good, of justice, comes through. God gave the people of Israel his law, which as we read it, we can find very dry and very confusing. But God gave them his law so they might know him and make him known and uh, reflect him. And because that's what the law is for, it's unsurprisingly that at the heart of the law is a concern for justice. So for example, in Exodus 23, God says, You shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. You shall take no bribe. What the law says is there's to be equal, there's to be equal justice before the law. That you don't favor the rich at the expense of the poor. Also, importantly, you don't, out of envy for the rich, have a bias against them when it comes to the law to favor the poor unjustly. The law is to be blind to social standing. Actually, whether you're rich or poor, what counts is what is right. That's clear as we read the Old Testament law. Now, of course, in reality, that does tend to favor the poor because the natural order of things is that the rich are able to buy justice. The rich buy uh, the best legal help. The rich know how to work the system. The rich can pass a bribe and cause corruption. And so if the law says there's to be equal justice, it's the law is to be socially blind in that sense. Actually, what it does is it favors the poor because it levels the playing field. And so the scripture is clear. Don't let bribery into your legal system. Don't let corruption come into it. Don't do it. Be true. Do what is right. Now, there are plenty of examples we can think of in our own day and age where the legal system doesn't work as it should. But I think one of the things, actually, we should be, by and large, grateful for, those of us who live in the UK, is for a legal system which does operate relatively impartially that we can go to the law and the law is impartial and that isn't actually by accident it's not just that we're lucky to live in a country which exists under the rule of law of course that reflects our christian heritage in this nation that the reason we have the kind of legal system we do where everybody is meant to have a fair hearing regardless of whether you're rich or whether you're poor where bribery and corruption isn't meant to taint the system the reason we have that kind of system the reason we assume that kind of system is right it's because for thousands of years, Christianity has influenced how this society runs. And yes, of course, we know that there can still be injustices in our system. Lawyers and judges and get things wrong, and sometimes police are corrupt. And of course, yes, the rich can afford to buy better lawyers than the poor can. But we know that if we go to court, we don't have to pass a bribe. We're mercifully free from that kind of corruption. And when those who are meant to uphold justice fail to do so it's a terrible thing it's a disgraceful thing and god hates it when that happens and so the the law emphasizes do what is right be just be impartial and then the prophets speak against injustice when those who are meant to uphold the law in uphold righteousness justice fail to do so Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10 says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, 
to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their rights, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Woe to them. God hates it when those who are meant to uphold justice fail to do so. And the prophets speak about this again and again because justice is so close to God's heart. That's why the law underlines it and the prophets speak about it. God cares about justice. And of course, this isn't just an Old Testament theme. The church takes up the cry of the Old Testament prophets. Sometimes literally the language that is used. Think about probably the most famous speech about justice. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, which, in which he was channeling Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos. Let justice, let freedom roll. The church takes up the cry of the prophets, the cry for justice. And yes, there have been times over the past 2,000 years where the church has grown corrupt and is polluted with corrupt rulers. But again and again, it has been the church that has spoken out for the widow and the orphan and the alien. Again and again, it's the people of God who take up that prophetic cry and say, justice matters, it matters to God, and we need to care for the poor. God also punishes rulers who abuse their power. One of the most uh, sobering stories of the Old Testament is in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 21, the story of Naboth's vineyard. Naboth, a man, a righteous man, has a vineyard, and King Ahab looks out of his window and sees the vineyard, and he wants it for a vegetable patch, and he can't take it legally, and his wife Jezebel concocts a scheme where they trump up false charges against Naboth and end up getting Naboth killed, and then Ahab gets hold of this vineyard and takes it for his own. And that becomes a kind of a... That, that, that story becomes a personification of wickedness in the Old Testament. What is wickedness? What is evil? It's Ahab and Jezebel stealing an innocent man's vineyard. It's corrupting the process of justice. It's corrupting the law. It's rulers not doing what they're meant to. And they come to a sticky end. Jezebel comes to a very sticky end. The dogs end up licking her blood. And God punishes rulers who abuse their power. They face a reckoning. Often in this life, certainly in the age to come. Because unjust rulers tear down their land. Whereas just rulers build it up. God punishes those who abuse their power. But he promises blessing to the just. Psalm 112. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn, his strength, that is. His strength is exalted in honor. Now this is a, a, it's a principle, it's not a mercenary equation, that's often how these kind of promises work in the Bible, it's how the Psalms and the Proverbs and other promises in the Bible often work. It's not, if you give to the poor, then you will be strong. It's not a mercenary equation, it's a principle. It's a principle about how we are to treat other people, that if we treat people well, if we're generous, if we give to the poor, the principle is you reap what you sow. You act with justice, you act with kindness, you act with generosity, you act right, you live good. You normally end up reaping what you sow. 
And God's blessing is towards those who live this way. Acting in a godly way actually brings its own blessing. That when you're living in a way which reflects and honors God, that in itself brings blessing into your life. You know that sense of communion with God when you're walking in his ways, when you're reflecting his heart, when the things which matter to God are the things that matter to you. That brings a blessing. It brings that sense of knowing peace with God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. It helps us to experience it and live it. To live well, to live a godly way, brings a blessing to us. Corruption results in corruption. Goodness in blessing. If we live in a corrupt way, we end up just corrupt body and soul. If we live in a good way, we experience something of the blessing of God. God's promise is blessing to those who are just. Justice, doing good, is woven through the story. It's central to God's character. And then we see that made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Because doing good was central to his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, we read about what's described as the inauguration of Christ's ministry. It's the moment suddenly Jesus goes public. There have been those years of of obscurity where he's grown up as a boy and as a young man and into adult maturity in an obscure place, Nazareth, a one-horse, flea-bitten town. He's worked a manual job. He's worked as as a builder. He's He knows what it is to put a house up. He knows how to fix the roof. He knows how to uh, put up a shelf, get it straight. He's worked, and he's been in obscurity. We know very little about his first 30 years. We just have that one story about him going to the temple as a boy, going to the place where his father is, and amazing the teachers there because of his understanding of God. And then Luke 4, suddenly Jesus emerges. His public ministry begins. And the way that his ministry begins is with an announcement of God's heart. For justice. It says this, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's happening. Now it's fascinating that Jesus says there this has been fulfilled. Jesus opens up Isaiah and he reads this magnificent prophecy about God's heart for the poor. And Jesus says, it's been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled. And of course, the question to ask there immediately is, well, how? How? Because at this point, actually no one had yet been healed and no one had been set free. Jesus hadn't yet begun his public healing ministry. He hadn't yet laid his hands on anybody who was blind and had received their sight. He hadn't yet commanded somebody who was lame to get up and walk. That hadn't happened. He hadn't yet released anybody from spiritual oppression. That hadn't happened yet. And yet Jesus says, today it's fulfilled in your presence, in your hearing. How? It's because the coming of Jesus 
has guaranteed the completion of what Isaiah saw. Even though you can say, well, nothing's actually happened yet, it, it's fulfilled, it's complete, it's guaranteed because Jesus is now on the scene. The breaking of the kingdom of God into the earth is sure and it's certain. What Jesus announced that day in Nazareth is the certain triumph of justice. And then he begins to enact that in his ministry, that he goes around teaching and the sick are healed, the oppressed are freed, and injustice is challenged. And then Jesus is nailed to the cross and injustice is nailed to the cross with him. Jesus himself becomes the victim of gross judicial injustice, the innocent man condemned to die. And Christ's own experience of injustice means the end of all injustices. Because Christ's death doesn't end in death. Christ's death ends in resurrection life. Jesus is raised to life again, incorruptible life. And in his incorruptible life, in his body which will never now become corrupt, never decay, never die. In his resurrection life and power, we see the hope of all injustice, all poverty swept away. Everything is corrupt, destroyed, nailed to the cross and killed. And so now all things are straining towards the day of his return and the visible end of all injustice. But Jesus in that synagogue 2,000 years ago was able to say, it's done already. It's certain, it's sure. And as we live in a world where we still see so much injustice, where 45 million people can be killed in a four-year period in China, or where people can be crushed in a football ground and it can be covered up, or where things can happen in our own lives, which feel terribly unfair and terribly unjust. We look to the day which we know is coming with certainty when all that injustice and all the poverty and all the corruption will be swept away. And in this time, in this time between the times, in this time between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return, the church is called to enact the ministry of Jesus and to reflect the character of God. And so ministry to the poor is central to the life of the church. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he describes a visit he made as this uh, kind of stranger to the other apostles. The other apostles, of course, have been with, with Jesus. They've been his disciples. They've walked the streets with him. They've heard him teach. They've see, seen him heal. And they were based in Jerusalem. And Paul was this kind of outsider. He was never part of that group. He was a persecutor, a hater of the church. And God broke into his life and changed him. And he wasn't part of that gang. And he describes the time when he went to Jerusalem to meet the other apostles and just to kind of check out that they were all on the same sheet. And he was doing what he was meant to be doing. And they were on the same team. And he describes it like this. When James and Cephas, another name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, to the Jews. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul and Barnabas go and see the other apostles. They go and see James and Peter and John and talk together and they welcome one another and recognize the grace of God at work in each other. And there's just one thing that the Jerusalem apostles say to Paul and Barnabas to do. Remember the poor. Remember the poor. Remembering the poor 
is at the heart of apostolic mission. Of course it is, because that reflects the character of God. God is concerned about justice. God is concerned for the widow and for the orphan and for the alien. And so, of course, the mission of the church then has to be about the widow and the orphan and the alien. It has to be about remembering the poor. The trouble is then we so quickly get into the debates about, well, who are the poor? How do you, descri- how do you categorize who the poor are? Who's, who's really poor? Who's not really poor? Who's pretending to be poor? Who's poor but not compared to them poor? Who, who are the poor? And that becomes very quickly a smokescreen for injustice. And Jesus was asked a question which was just like that. It wasn't who's the poor. Jesus was asked the question, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told a story about that. He told the story of the Good Samaritan. He told a story of a, a man robbed and beaten up and left to die on the road and of a number of re- religious folk walking by and saying, well, this isn't my neighbor. And so a Samaritan who's an enemy comes and finds this man and picks him up and cares for him and nurses him and pays for his recovery. And Jesus says, who's the neighbor? And the answer, of course, it's this man. It's this man who's actually an enemy, but he's been a friend. He's been a neighbor. And the point that Jesus makes is that your neighbor is anyone who is in need, who God puts in your path. And we need to be very careful that we don't restrict our definition of neighbor, that we don't restrict our definition of poor. We don't kind of fudge it around. We don't walk by on the other side and say, well, that's not my neighbor. That person's not really poor. That's not my problem. We mustn't do that. We need to have our eyes open, our hearts open to our neighbor, to the poor. mustn't restrict our definition. So what should we do in order to do good? What practically then should we do with this? Well, in many ways, this is a very difficult subject to speak on. It's a bit like um, talking about prayer or talking about giving or any other kind of spiritual discipline because as soon as we begin to talk about it, what tends to happen is you immediately become very conscious of your own inadequacies and failings. It's difficult to talk about these things because you can immediately think, ah, I'm not doing that very well myself. Or for us as a community to think, actually, as a church, we're not doing as well on these things perhaps as we should be. And it's very easy for guilt to come in and actually this can be a strategy of our enemy the devil who will very quickly want to make us feel guilty condemned hey you're not doing what you're meant to be doing you're not doing very well you're rubbish you lot and that kind of condemnation can come in and we need to resist it and so the the first thing really to answer this question what should we do to do good is to ask another question which is well where is your heart where are our hearts Fundamentally, are our hearts open to our neighbors? Are our hearts open to God? Let's start with that question by examining our hearts. Where is my heart? Where is your heart? Where, as a church together, where is our heart in this? Where's our hearts in its openness to God and in our openness to our neighbor? The reality is it's, it's so easy to get into compassion fatigue when we think about the poor, when we think about justice. There's stuff on the TV every night overwhelming global problems what on earth can we do what can we do what can i do what can you do what can we even do as a church what can we do about war in syria what can we do about thousands of refugees pouring across the mediterranean what can we do about 
death and famine in different parts of the world. These things seem so huge and so overwhelming and so far away, and we can feel very small and incapable, and we can quickly get a sense of compassion fatigue. And there's always somebody shaking a bucket. Every time you go into B&Q, there's somebody shaking a bucket as you come out, making you feel guilty if you don't put a few coins in there. Every time you go to Sainsbury's or Tesco, there's someone shaking a bucket in your face. Oh, not another bucket. Got to find some more change, or I feel so guilty. Or you walk past the bursting, oh, I feel so rubbish that I walked past the Julia's house bucket and didn't put anything in this time. There's always somebody shaking a flipping bucket in your face. And there's always something else in the news. And you can just feel this kind of sense of compassion fatigue. And it's easy to feel guilty. Easy to feel guilty. I'm not doing enough. The world hasn't changed by my actions. And so one thing we need to know, we need to receive God's grace to us. But yeah, we can't fix all the world's problems. We can't even fix all our neighbor's problems. We give and we give generously and we need to learn to give more and more generously. And we've got a special offering coming up in a couple of weeks and we need to give generously to that. It's something I think God wants to stretch us in, but we could give every penny we have and the problems of the world would still be the problems of the world. And so we need to know God's grace, that we're accepted by God, not on the basis of how often we put money in the buckets that are shaking in our faces, but we're accepted on the basis of God's grace to us. He loves us and he welcomes us. But actually, we fundamentally were poor as well. We were poor because we didn't know God. And in God's incredible mercy and justice, he's enabled us to know him and he brings us into what the Bible describes as his riches. We're brought from poverty into wealth because of what Christ does for us. So we need to know God's grace. We also need to know God's heart, that God's heart is for the poor. God's heart is for justice. God's heart is for the orphan, for the widow, and for the alien. And so what God puts in our hand, we need to use to serve those that God puts in our path. We can't do everything and we can't help everybody, but we've got some things in our hands and we've got some people in our path. We've got some neighbors who we can help. And as we keep our hearts open to God's grace and our hearts open to God's heart, we'll find that God puts more into our hands and we're able to help more of our neighbors and display more of the goodness and the kindness of God. And as a church together, I do feel this time that it's one of the things that God's been speaking to me about. It's one of the things that God spoke to me when I was at a, a conference in Athens a few weeks ago, ago that we, we need to grow in our ambition when it comes to how we serve the poor and how we fight for justice. We don't, we don't just settle for where we are. We're not driven by guilt that we're not doing enough, but we're motivated by God's grace for what he's done with us. And that stirs up in us an ambition to do more, to ask God to put more in our hands that we can be a blessing to more people. As you came in, you should have got one of these serving at Gateway flyers, and this describes some of the things which we're already doing and some of the things which we have ambitions to get started over the next few months in terms of our ministry to those who need help. Some of the things that we're doing, for example, we're involved in uh, Home for Good, uh, which isn't on the flyer, but uh, working with... with uh, with, with the orphan, literally. And one of the great thrills of the last couple of years here at Gateway has been how there's been a growing number of people, a growing number of you who have taken the 
incredibly bold, brave step to adopt a child. That's a very biblical thing to do. God's heart is for the orphan. Brilliant, fantastic. Uh, we're involved in Michael's house. Again, lots of people in the church wouldn't even know about, but it's uh, offers supported living to the homeless in Bournemouth, and Nathan Richard, the trustees on the Michael House board, and we're involved in that, in that work of seeking to serve the homeless in Poole and Bournemouth. Oasis, our, our work uh, with, with the domestic violence refuge, we're currently connected with 17 families in the refuge and eight families who've come out of the refuge. Again, it's not something that everybody would know about or be involved in. It's obviously, it's sensitive. Uh, you generally can't have men going into the refuge because of the, the, the sensitivities there. So it's kind of a bit under the surface, but it's something we're involved in and committed to. And there are other things which we are wanting to do. We plan to start a job club in September to help those who need to find employment. We're looking to start a life skills course where we can help those, especially those who've kind of come through the job club to learn some practical stuff about how to do life well, how to balance the books, how to cook on a budget, how to resolve conflict, those kind of things. We're hoping to start up some parenting uh, courses for those who have children with additional needs. We've got lots of aspirational stuff in the pipeline. There's things we're doing already and there's more that we want to do. And uh, this leaflet describes some of the things which we are doing or about to start which you can be involved in. And so I'd encourage you to take that away and think about it. And many of you are already serving in lots of different ways, but it might be there's something on here you think, oh, I could get involved there. I'll be interested in finding out more. And if that's you, uh, motivated by grace, not by guilt, uh, it'd be great if you could stick your name in there and drop it in to, uh, you could do it today, give it to Richard or give it to somebody in one of the Connect team tops or drop it into the office. And we'd love to connect you up uh, in our mission, following the heart of God to help those who are our neighbor. We are called to do good, and we're called to fight for justice. The proverb says, it's not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. That's not good. And because God calls us to be like him, and because we have neighbors who are in need, we need to be a church which takes this seriously, that justice matters and it's good to live in a way which is good. We're going to finish by watching a video which I found helpful, talking about justice. And uh, as you watch that, I shall disappear down to 502 and hand back to the guys here. A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. Give your life completely to business and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work and you work and you work and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? And that question though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. 
And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know why they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family. Because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times we fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your cause. I want us just to take a moment just to be in silence. It's um it can be uncomfortable sometimes just to sit in silence in a place like this, but I want us to just let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. Let's just close our eyes and let's just focus on that one act of gross injustice. Jesus, innocent man, going to the cross, dying for us, which gained for us the greatest act of justice. The Bible says that we were far from God. We were, we were enemies of God. And when Jesus died and shed his blood for you and I on the cross, that changed. He moved us from the enemy's column and he walked across and put us in the friend's column. Let's just let the Holy Spirit minister to us and let that settle in your heart for a moment. Spirit of God, we just say, come. Lord, we thank you for what you did for us on the cross. And we're sorry for where we take it lightly sometimes or don't adequately um, associate ourselves well with what you've done. But we say that we're grateful that there was a day in which you went to the cross, were nailed to that piece of wood, were left to die. As you lay dying, you were mocked. Your blood was shed for us. You went to the grave, having left a place of comfort in heaven because you saw us in our plight and in our poverty and you loved us and you said, I'm getting my children back. Jesus, we just say thank you to you for that. Lord, let that minister to our hearts this morning. <laughs> 